Welcome. While you're making way your places, opening your Bibles to Psalm 96, we'll open our time in prayer in a moment to express our neediness and also our resistance of relying on self as we endeavor about the morning. Just to give you a reminder, yes, we're doing like a summer in the Psalms here for five or six weeks uh, up to kind of deep into August. What lies beyond that is the book of Galatians. So if you want to be prepping for that, I know you've been spending time in Hebrews and in your own Bible reading plans, but any sort of familiarity that you will have to the book of Galatians prior to that will be profitable. If not, uh, nevertheless, it will be profitable all the same. So um, the book of Galatians Galatians lies ahead. That will no doubt take us well into the majority of 2023 and wrap up 2022. So it's going to be a great compliment um, to the book of Hebrews. Anytime you hear that sound, it's always a gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching sound. So uh, let's, let's pray this morning. Ask for the Lord's help. You're in Psalm 96. Excellent. I trust you're eager to dive into God's word today. We have tired people. You stayed out late last night for July 4th. No, Joe, Joe's not tired. I'm seeing it. I, I'm, I'm feeling tired. Uh, let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, the rest that we received, we know that it is sufficient. Your, Lord, your grace is sufficient for the task at hand. We approach it with joy, with eagerness. We're moved with gratitude. We are undeserving of your kindness. We're undeserving of a relationship that we can enjoy with such a great God. We pray that you would move us by your glory today as we look at Psalm 96 and that you would compel us to live and operate in certain ways for your renown, for the advancement of your kingdom and for the proclamation of your great name. Uh, Lord, where we are insufficient and unfaithful in that area, uh, Lord, would you move us, convict us, uh, Lord, and even rebuke us, Lord. We ask that you would work that in us because we know that is for your good and for our good. And so we ask this by your grace. Lord, we pray for whatever that amber alert or notification was on the phone. You know the exact scenario. We pray for safety and preservation of life. Uh, Lord, uh, that that young person would be able to escape harm, that justice would be rendered. Give the law enforcement uh, great vigor and wisdom as they set about enacting that justice. Lord, we're grateful for the ways and things that you've put in place, even Romans 13. Uh, law enforcement, we're grateful for those that serve in that way uh, to uphold the law and righteous, righteousness and abate evil. Lord, we're grateful for this morning. We look to you now in this time. We ask that you would have your way uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Psalm 96. Psalms 96. Motives. Motives are a very important part of the Christian life and, and really in all that we do to serve God, right? Uh, why we do what we do is important to God. And so we're going to deal with motives this morning. Now, the tricky part about motives is that motives can often be deceptive, right? And they can be deceptive in the way that we manifest them, right? There are various portions, whole swaths of the Christian life that are actually done from wrong motives. And just to take a moment to pause there for a second and Let me have you share with all of us, what are some examples of wrong, faulty motives of which we carry out different parts of the Christian life? Wrong motives. Okay, kind of uh, rewards, uh, earning things from God and blessing and favor. Okay. Works, righteousness even kind of uh, embedded in that. 
Paul, did you mention something? Personal gain, right? Very self-focused, yes. The approval of man, praise and accolades, the attaboy, the pat on the back, excellent. Self-fulfillment, excellent. Anything else? <clears throat> Apologize in advance for the random coughs. coughs. We said the praise of man, what's the opposite of that? What's another blank of man? What's that? Condemnation, we fear, right? We fear man. So we seek the praise of man. We fear man. Anything else? Joe mentioned kind of performance-based religion. Do we oftentimes even can potentially do things from a guilty conscience, right? We do things all, all, all the time from wrong motives. And wrong motives can really render our work ineffective, the same token, right motives, pure motives, inevitably propels us in the right direction. And among the many passions that spur us on in the Christian life, there is one master motive that resides over all, right? And that is the glory of God. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for what? All for the glory of God. And nowhere is this more true then in the area of missions and outreach and evangelism. You see, friends, there is an inseparable connection between our passion for the glory of God and our faithfulness in efforts of evangelism. Whenever evangelism is a dwindling ember in my life, it is severely lacking in my life, I am simultaneously not being passionate about the glory of God. But to be passionate about God's glory is to desire what? I desire more worshipers of God. I'm so impressed by him. I'm so moved by him. He deserves worship from all people. That is what it is to be passionate for God's glory and really is the thrust of Psalm 96. It, it is going to call all nations and all peoples to come and ascribe to the king the glory that belongs to him and him alone. And our lives should have this same kind of thrust. So I ask you this morning before we read Psalm 96, do you love this king? Are you passionate about his glory? And as you ponder that question, and perhaps you're thinking, not as I ought to be. My hope that even in my own life, it's not Psalm 96 would do a number in my own life and practice really my own heart and motives. So let's allow God to examine us through his word. If you're taking notes, the main idea that we have jotted down for the psalm today is that the glory of God should be the, our chief motivation for evangelizing the world. The glory of God should be our chief motivation for evangelizing the world. Psalm 96 reads the following. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. 
Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, and this is key, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. The glory of God should be our chief motivation for evangelizing the world. Let's unpack this for a moment. Number one, the glory of God should do a number of things in our lives. The glory of God first should drive believers into a relentless pursuit of all people. It should drive believers into a relentless pursuit of all people. And I say drives which implies that we are often what? We often need to be driven (laughs) into this pursuit. This is not necessarily just innate to the human nature, right? It's not instinctive to us. What is instinctive to us is the the proclamation of my own glory, (laughs) my own renown. I don't need coaching in that department. The glory of God drives us into a relentless pursuit of all people. Unfortunately, this pursuit is often non-existent in our lives. That's not the case with the psalmist, is it? Look at verses 1 through 3. You have this massive invitation to worship. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. And notice the universality of the invitation. All the earth. This is addressed far beyond the believing remnant. This is a worldwide summons extended to the entire earth, a summons to every person in every place, every nation, continent, race. Sinners everywhere are called to give praise to God, to come and worship the greatness of him who creates and him who saves and him who reigns. As we read that this morning, I hope you have this kind of global perspective today. It's easy to kind of just reside in the North Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth area and live in our kind of insulated bubble. This psalmist was impassioned with all the earth knowing the greatness of his God. That's convicting for me, if just to be honest, because I, I can often live and be consumed with just my own life, my own domain, my, my own spheres of responsibilities that I am not just broken and burdened like this psalmist. And the truth is, many of us could say the same thing. Sing to the Lord all the earth. I am obsessed with knowing all the earth of wanting them to know the greatness of my God. The glory of God should drive us into this kind of relentless pursuit of all people. And I say relentless for a reason. It's because not only is the psalmist not narrow-minded in his invitation list, he's stubbornly persistent. Notice the stubborn evangelist. He says, sing, sing, sing. It's this rapid staccato fire kind of fashion proclamation. This this drum that's been beaten in resounding fashion. Sing, sing, 
sing. And later on in verses 7 through 8, it's the same exact thing. A scribe, a scribe, a scribe. That's, friends, that's the Hebrew way of elevating something to the supreme degree. This is of utmost importance, right? We know it in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. This is the Hebrew way of elevating this in importance. This is a very stubborn evangelist. He's obsessed with this. And what a contrary example to, to that of us, right? He's a very stubborn evangelist, and I'm usually a very spineless evangelist. Cowering, afraid, doing things for the approval of man, doing things out of a guilty conscience because I know I should, and it's the right thing to do. I'm not often marked by this stubbornness. I'm marked by other stubbornness, but not this variety. This psalmist is relentlessly inviting, crying out to the entire world to join him in singing this tune to the one true great God. And what is that tune that all the earth is invited to sing? What kind of tune is it? Look at the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 1. What kind of song? A new song. What is this new song? Well, it's not a song that's recently composed. A new song is the song now sung by the redeemed that radically opposes the old song that they used to sing. That song that they sung in their old life when they didn't know God. They sang the empty and vain babblings of this world. That was us. That was our old song. Instead, this is a song of redemption to God. These are the lyrics that celebrate his glory and his grace. It's really the anthem of Ephesians 1, right? You have this eternal plan of God that culminates in the redemption of sinners by God's grace through the finished work of his son. And what's it to? All throughout Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. We sing that song, come praise and glory, glorify our God. It's right out of Ephesians 1 to the praise of his glorious grace. Just give a pastoral pause this morning and to simply ask what kind of song is the world hearing from you? Is it a new song? Is it a clear song? Is your life heralding the melody of God's saving, wonderful, powerful grace? Are you more like elevator music in the background? You're subtle, you're faint, barely noticed. Or perhaps you're the long, awkward melody of silence. You're just quiet. You're not passionate, your mouth is not open, and you are not faithful. Perhaps your song is one that resembles more the old song than the new song. It was not the case with this psalmist. This individual screams with all of his might from every rooftop imaginable and every place that he might bring every soul into, wor- into the worship song of his great God. And notice the exclusive nature of his audience. Sing to who? Sing to the Lord. Why? It's because there's exclusively one in the audience because there's exclusively only one who is exclusively responsible for salvation. 
We sing to the Lord because there's salvation in no one else, right? Acts 4.28. We bless his name because the great king is the only one who redeems. I trust you're well acquainted with his name this morning. I trust you know this king. We are to be a people like the psalmist to proclaim good tidings of whose salvation? Of God's salvation. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation. And we do so how often? From day to day to day. Why? It's because he's filled us with a new song. And our lives are never the same. And when your lives are never the same and you're indwelt with a new song, you can't stop declaring what God has done in your life. You know, the person that really, they come to Christ for the first time and it is radically altered, obvious, right? And they can't stop telling people what God has done in their life. The transformation, the rescue, the salvation, the conscience that's been cleansed, the freedom, the hope, the peace that's indwelt them for the very first time. They've never known this peace and they know it. And you cannot shut them up. Fast forward a few years and we're in Christ. We know him and right familiarity breeds contempt and we grow comfortable. And no longer is God and our Savior as impressive as he initially was to us. And that is unfortunate. That's not the case with the psalmist. He can't stop declaring what God has done. Sing to the Lord. So friends, our invitation is the same as the psalmist. Our lives should be ascribing the same thing. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This church should be about sing to the Lord all the earth. Wherever people are on the earth, they're called to turn away from their empty gods, their vain idols, to turn away from vain religion, renounce the songs that they had previously sung, and now they're called, we call them, into allegiance to God. This psalmist is doing exactly that. He's commanding his neighbors to forsake their pagan idols. Forsake the worship of Baal. Abandon the following of Nana. Renounce Asherah. Abandon Dagon. Turn away from Ashtaroth. Refuse Malak. Deny Ramon. Deny Rishra. Turn your back from Nebo. Forsake Marduk. All the other false gods that the psalmist was surrounded by. And he's pleading with them to come and worship the only true God that there is. Friends, isn't that what evangelism does? It calls people to turn away, abandon their empty gods, and do what? To worship the one true God. That's what evangelism is. And we are surrounded by people who are worshiping headlong empty gods, are they not? The false idols of the world are many. So he is telling the Hindus of India to sing to the Lord. He's telling the Muslims of Lebanon to sing to the Lord. To the Lord. He tells the 28 million people that reside in the state of Texas, over 7 million that are in the North Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth area, right? 150 counties. All of them are called to do one thing to ascribe the Lord to the Lord, the glory that is due his name. At the University of North Texas, you have two and a half thousand international students from 150 countries. All of them in one place are all called to do the same thing. And that's to render praise to God. 
And the question remains is, well, how are people going to know about this God? How are they going to know about the one that they are to sing to and worship and have allegiance before? How are they going to know his name in order to bless it? Well, the answer is in verse 3. Because you really have the great commission of, of the Psalter right here. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Verse 3 is addressed to those who will go to the nations. God's people bearing a responsibility with this innate now knowledge that they've been given of their God. This understanding, their eyes being open, and this knowledge of God should never make them passive. This knowledge of God should never make them inactive towards the kingdom of God. But the knowledge of the glory of God is like octane fuel put into your heart. And you are set ablaze for one purpose in your life. The person who knows of the infinite glory of God, that is the person that is motivated to the nth degree to make sure that he is known among all people. They cannot help but declare his glory. So again, I ask you this morning, much like I ask myself, Lord, am I singing this new song? I know it resides within me. How loudly am I singing it? How persistent am I in my singing? How clear am I in my singing? Are you blessing the name of God routinely throughout your life, day to day to day? Do you have a passion to tell of his glory to the nations? Excuse me. If you don't, what are you to do? Let's look at verses four through six. Excuse me. The glory of God should fuel God's people in that pursuit. Verses four through six. Not only did we have the invitation to worship, you have the inspiration of worship. Let's read verse four for a moment. It starts with the word for, for which introduces an explanation. Here's why all the earth should renounce their empty gods, their false idols, and worship the one true God. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The greatness of God is what draws people to come and worship him. Thank you very much. Randy, a friend. Bible says bring a cup of cold water or a mint or whatever this is. Principles all the same. Appreciate you. The greatness of God is what draws people to come and worship him. Evangelism is the work of the church of doing what? Declaring the greatness of God. As 1 Peter says, proclaiming the excellencies of him. That's what we do. (laughs) Proclaim the excellencies of God. And there's nothing we should be hesitant about, nothing that we should be ashamed about. Our God, a God this great and this glorious, demands a great amount of worshipers. It goes on to read, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. Literally, the word there, nothing, empty, false, frauds, fakes. But the Lord made the heavens. 
They are empty. They are vain. Goodness. They cannot do what they promise to do. God is very different, innately different. The Lord made the heavens. Listen, the distinguishing mark that sets God apart from all the wannabe gods on this earth is that he made heaven and earth. He is creator. He's the one who's spoken everything out of nothing. You want to know why thousands of years Satan has been bent on corrupting the doctrine of creation. This is why. Everything began at this place. If you mess with this, you start to mess with everything else. The Lord made the heavens. You think the doctrine of creation is important? Absolutely. He is radically, uniquely, supremely different than all the other false gods the people you are surrounded by are worshiping. And if you think for a moment or you're not convinced of his worth, look at verse 6. You have two pairs of divine attributes that are really kind of seen as guardians around his throne, just kind of radiating out from his holiness. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This type of sovereign splendor should elicit the praise of all people. I would ask you again today, how would you describe your pursuit of all people? Do you break for the nations? Does your heart break for the nations? Are you comfortable? In a sense, are we spiritually fat and lazy, inactive, unmoved, and uninterested? Are you running on jet fuel for the glory of God? Are you just coasting on fumes? You're all together out of gas. If that's you this morning, let me ask, what should we do? If I am uninterested and distracted and my heart is not broken but is comfortable and I am lured away by the trinkets of this life, what should I do? What's the remedy? You tell me. Not a rhetorical question. If the glory of God is what fuels us in this pursuit, what should I do? Study the truth. Place myself, avail myself to the resource which is going to herald to me day to day to day of the glory of God in all of its beautiful form. And it never gets exhausted, does it? What does 1 Corinthians talk about? We have beheld beheld the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. What do I do if I'm coasting and unmoved? If the glory of God fuels me in this pursuit of all people for his glory, for his renown, I need to become reacquainted with his glory, his weightiness, his splendor. That's the encouragement for us this morning. We We want all people, we insist that all people know this God. And we will not rest until that is accomplished. How should this God be worshipped is also important. That moves us to verse 7 through 9. Because not only should the glory of God drive us into relentless pursuit of all people, not only does the glory of God fuels us in that pursuit, but the glory of God should shape 
the very pursuit of his increased worship. It matters to God how we worship. And that's where in verses 7 through 9, we see these very clear instructions for us. Third stanza is all about how God is to be magnified. Ascribe to the Lord. And again, kind of of staccato fashion. Hebrew way of elevating it. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. And notice who it is that these instructions go out to in verse 7. The families of the peoples. These are all Gentiles on the earth. This is a worldwide outreach. And the psalmist is not merely looking for decisions. He's not merely looking for cards to be signed or a prayer to be rendered or an aisle to be walked or an offering to be given. God is desirous of fervent praise to be brought to him and he deserves it, doesn't he? And this psalmist screams most loudly because he has come to grips with the weightiness of his God. That all glory and strength belongs to him. Now, that's a very short, succinct, and really kind of clear statement. But it is pregnant with information. It is loaded with truth there. Glory and strength belong to him. That glory, right? Havod, right? Heaviness. Weightiness, the sum and substance of his divine attributes and perfections. This psalmist is really, I guess, the most easiest way to put it. This psalmist is blown away. His God is impressive. And he wants to know, have other people know and declare of his impressiveness. Is that descriptive of you this morning? People in your life think co-workers, neighbors, friends... Do they know, hey, that that Jake, that Paul, that Adam, and whatever you say about that guy, what kind of employee, what kind of father, and that guy is impressed with the God that he worships. People say that about me. It's convicting to think about. This psalmist is undeniably impressed with God. He says, all glory and strength belong to him, the glory of his name. He goes on to say in verse 8, bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Worship, shikah, literally to prostrate oneself in the presence of royalty. You are, you are bowing down as an act of submission, rendering homage to the one who's infinitely superior to yourself. That's the kind of worship. You are humbled before God. I'll be honest with you this morning. That's not always how we approach the worship of God, is it? Like literally face down on the ground. So reverent, so serious, so exuberant and passionate and sincere. Because we are amazed with his impressiveness. That's helpful for this next hour. We're going to sing some powerful songs and we're going to... Rest ourselves under the teaching and preaching of God's word in Hebrews chapter 3. And people should walk into those glass doors. And they, they could probably say a lot of things. What an odd bunch would be one of them. What a beautiful bunch. But they should also say is, whoa. These people are impressed with someone. 
And we get to turn around and tell them, let me tell you who I'm impressed by. And everything about our fellowship and everything about our service and about our worship is proclaiming that. Our God is impressive. Let me proclaim his salvation day to day to day. Let me tell the world what he has done. We are to worship with this kind of sincerity. This should be our MO. We should worship in holy attire. We are to be dressed with garments of purity and holiness, which is contrary to how we often come into this place, perhaps. We come into this place holding grudges, ill will, hurt feelings, bitterness. We bring in a variety of unbelief or expressions of unbelief. The list goes on. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Psalm 24, 3 reads the following. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Psalm 15, 1 says really the same thing. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does he, eat, does he do evil to his neighbor. North Lake, we do not worship in hypocrisy. We worship with fidelity of heart and of mind, purity of life, which begs the question to you and I, what kind of threads or clothes are you wearing this morning? Is it holy attire? Yes, there's a real sense that positionally you are made righteous in Christ. Praise to, the glorious, to his glorious grace. But there's also our practical life, our day-to-day life, of which we're oftentimes trying to put on muddy clothes. We've been adorned with the righteousness of God, and yet I keep still trying to put on old garments. Garments that stink. Garments that are unpleasant to look at. Garments that are not befitting the worship of God. This is important to us because as human beings, we're always looking at each other's clothes. I always ask my wife on Sunday morning, did I wear this shirt last week? And she tells me, you're a guy. No one pays attention to your clothes. No guy looks at your clothes. Now a girl, they know she wore every, you know, the last eight Sundays. And you dare not repeat them. I'm, a, I'm glad I'm a guy. For many, many reasons. I probably did wear this shirt last Sunday. And some of you are judging me for it even now. We're always looking at each other's clothes. Is your attire befitting a worshiper of God? Or are you sending mixed signals as to who your God is? Perhaps the world looks at you and infers the following. Perhaps they infer that your God isn't so great. Perhaps they infer that he's not even important for, enough for you to approach in reverence. They, they see how you live throughout the week, but they also know that you go to church on Sunday. That's mixed signals. They know you to be a person who shows greater reverence to the manager at the store than you do in your worship of God. That's not the case from those who get a sense of God's weightiness. Those individuals do something radically different. They tremble before God. 
Their lives encourage others on the earth to tremble before him. Worship should be so soul-gripping and heart-shaking and awe-inspiring that we tremble. Worship, what we're going to do just even now as we sit here, as we do, as we leave and enjoy lunch in the afternoon, as we sing songs this, this morning. Worship's not a casual experience. A casual worship service is an oxymoron. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms. There's nothing casual about what we do in our worship of God. He's too great to be casual. When a visitor walks through these doors, they should be see a people gripped by the greatness and grandeur of God. The question is, how can we call upon the earth to tremble when our lives manifest so infrequently that very act itself? This is the type of worship that the people of God should be characterized by and the type of worship that the nations are called to participate in. Very convicting this morning because if you ask believers what are kind of the two areas of the Christian life that you are most efficient in and you need prayer and you need encouragement in, what are, what are the two of them? Prayer and evangelism. Every time. Psalm 96 is good medicine for us. We don't always like drinking it, but it's good medicine. As we reach the end of the psalm, we have to ask what would bring pagan people and pagan nations and the unbelievers of the world, what would bring them into such lowly submission? What would prompt them to lay themselves prostrate before this great God? What would bring them out of their arrogance into submission and call them out of their idolatry? It's the message of verse 10. Because your fourth point this morning is that the glory of God is the resounding apologetic that he alone is worthy of praise. The resounding apologetic that he alone is worthy of all praise. The declaration of verses 10 through 13 is a reverberating or an emphatic defense and justification of his worth. And that's what an apologetic is, a defense for. Verse 10, say among the nations, and here it is, the Lord reigns. The unrivaled worldwide rule of God demands the praise of all people everywhere and, and listen if this God was just simply a regional deity possessing kind of local or limited dominion he would really only deserve and be adored by only the few that reside under his local jurisdiction but that's not this God is he the Lord reigns over all the earth there's no restriction to his global dominion so therefore, the natural conclusion and implication, therefore, he deserves worship of all people everywhere. There are no boundaries to his reign. Say among the late nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Even though the wicked temporarily escape his punishment and judgment, they're allowed to carry about their Lame and empty idolatry. God-hating agenda. Look how verse 10 ends. He will judge. This one who reigns, he will judge the peoples with equity. 
Friends, this is the heart of our message. There's only one God. He has made heaven and earth. And in spite of any chaotic appearances to the contrary, and just in spite of our turmoil and threats of the nations, the world is firmly established. Our God reigns. And it will not be moved. He is the God who reigns and presides over all the earth. And you need to believe that and have confidence in that. We've seen his reign throughout the psalm. We saw in verse 5 that this is a God who reigns over creation. In verse 3, he reigns over providence. He, verse 2, he reigns in salvation. And even here, verses 10 through 13, he reigns in judgment. He will judge the people with equity. This is the final judgment. <clears throat> On the last day, Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, his son, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by doing what? By raising his son from the dead. He has fixed a day. And that day is coming. And yet we live as if that day is not coming. How unfortunate and sad. Friends, if we believe that God has truly fixed a day that which he will judge the world in righteousness, what should be the implication of that? What should my life be possessed and obsessed with? I want to herald this message while I still can. I want to proclaim good tidings of his salvation before that day comes. We are to be a people about the work of calling people to repent from their false gods, to believe upon the God that we know and to call them to be saved. And it's when we declare that the Lord reigns that the families of the peoples ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, right? First Corinthians, Paul talks about, I did not come with lofty speech, right? But with a simple message of Christ and Christ crucified. It's not a message we put in our back pockets, a message to be set on. We have to open our mouths. We have to be faithful. The psalmist then anticipates the day when all of creation is going to respond enthusiastically to this proclamation that the Lord reigns. Everything that has been subjected to the curse in Genesis chapter 3 is going to join in to declare his worth and his reign. Look at verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Literally, all the created order is going to cry out and sing the song of redemption, right? You know it in Romans chapter 8 verse 20. That the creation was subjected to futility. It's literally groaning. And groaning for what? To be set free from its body and slavery of corruption. It wants this redemption. It's longing for it. The creation was subjected in futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in this judgment, creation will sing for joy before the Lord, verse 13, for he is coming. You want to talk anything that should compel you to stand up and speak 
and to ask for forgiveness where you have been unfaithful in this area. The Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Literally, verse 13, all people, all of creation is going to celebrate God's universal reign. A reign that's going to be most celebrated fully at the consummation of human history. When Christ returns to the earth, and he's going to judge the world in righteousness, just like Acts 17 talks about. We know this, right, in the end of our Bibles. Revelation 19 talks about a door in heaven opening. And a white horse is going to step through and him who sits on it is faithful and true. He's going to have many diadems upon his head and he's going to come forth to do what? He's going to come forth to judge the earth and judge as he will. And when that door in heaven opens, time will have run out for all those who have refused every prior invitation extended to him to sing to the Lord, ascribe to him glory and strength. Friends, this should impact us with great effect today. You and I who have tasted of God's goodness and his kindness and grace, which we have in Christ, we should be taken back. We should be obsessed with speaking of his saving grace, motivated to tell of the world of his glory. And that glory should be our motivation. I want other people to know of his impressiveness I want them to be struck by his greatness. I just encourage you this morning to give you kind of three questions to think about. And maybe we discuss here in our last 12 minutes. If the glory of God drives us into this relentless pursuit of all people, it fuels us in that pursuit. It even shapes our pursuit of this increased worship. And if the glory of God is the resounding apologetic that he is in fact worthy of all worship, where do I tap into this motivation? Where do I sit to bask in the rays of God's glory? We talked about it a second ago, but let's just kind of unpack that a little bit further. What can you do in your life to tap into this motivation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fix and intense as it should be. Excellent. So if you didn't miss what he said, and I'm not going to say it as well as, as, as he said it, he says, um, just the discipline of setting your mind on the glory of God, right? I, I love how you mentioned it was like there's morally neutral things of which in our life, work and sports and things that we genuinely enjoy that are not, not inherently evil, right? But being more disciplined to fo- focus and fixate on the glory of God has a way of keeping it ablaze in front and center as it ought to be does require discipline it doesn't happen by accident so there's an intentionality with that for sure what else practically speaking yes fear the Lord and love the Lord absolutely and when you're not fearing him avail yourselves to those things which induce a fear of the Lord a reverence what might some of those things be 
I hear someone. TV? Okay, yeah, that can numb me uh, from the glory of God, right? Other messages consuming my mind, my thoughts, my energies with other things, trivial things. Not evil things, but, but if the consumption of them is taking me away from being consumed with the glory of God, overwhelmed by the greatness of God, I need to examine that, assess that. What else? Politics, right? Yeah, you'd want to talk about a myopic way of live too. And this is true for me. I, I love politics. I love economics. Uh, I love markets. I love all these things and parts that are moving. And I can become obsessed with things that will not last one iota when he, <laughs> that day comes, that day that God is fixed. It's very convicting for me. Anything else? Yeah. Yet service has a way of like keeping our eyes off of ourselves too in our bubble, our comfort zone, our, our own pursuits, right? Putting yourself in positions where you're kind of like really propped up to do exactly this. Prompt these children to sing to the Lord, ascribe to him glory and strength. He's great. That's good for our own souls, right? Service. Anything else? Yes. Okay. We don't look sometimes to the Lord for his comfort and his word to apply that to our daily lives. Yeah, excellent. When things aren't well, uh, we try to make them well through our own efforts, right? Self-sufficiency. And you want to talk about a pathway for not uh, being moved by the grandeur of God is just thinking that you have everything in your, in your ability to, to fix solutions and rectify problems and make things right. And we don't. We are a desperate people. I think another thing is this. You encourage me in this space. At any given time, I may not be obsessed with the glory of God. I may not be overwhelmed by it. And then I interact with a friend who in that moment, who's so in tune with the greatness of his God, what does it do in my own life, right? That fellowship has a way of spurring me on. Not to be so consumed with my own little world. People's lives, their words, their encouragements, their presence in my life is declaring to me the Lord reigns. And I'm like, yes, you're right. I need to take my eyes off myself, my problems, my issues, my angst. I think as well just rehearsing the gospel, right? You know, proclaim good tidings of his salvation. Reacquaint yourself with what that salvation is. What was accomplished to procure that salvation. And all of its intricate form, beauty. Examine it, assess it. Appreciate it. Yeah. Just practical things. It's not overcomplicated, right? But simple things. Music. Things that are going to point me to the gospel. Biblical truth. Things that are going to prompt me to rehearse his wonderful deeds in history, right? Tell of his wonderful deeds among the peoples. I just didn't encourage you this morning, are you acquainted with those wonderful deeds? Just Bible reading, seeing his work in redemptive history, evidences of his grace and faithfulness. It is in your Bibles from cover to cover. Avail yourself to it. Let me ask you as well, what does a church passionate for God's glory look like? Just church, corporate. Corporate. 
Unity, excellent. We don't want disunity to take away from the glory of God. We don't want it to inhibit us from declaring of his greatness. So unity, excellent. What else? Serving, excellent. It's not a burden for me. I do it joyfully. I extend myself throughout the week. I ready myself to come early, set up, tear down. All of these things I do with joy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Spirit-led self-assessment, right? Is my heart where it needs to be, even in my service and even as I come this morning? Okay, yeah. This is not for... Yes. Practicing the one and others. Excellent. Yes. Yes, Ms. Dahl. Yeah, yeah, rightly divided. Handle God's word with care, precision. Excellent. Anything else? Yes. Right doctrine? Yes, absolutely. Be zealous for pure doctrine, right doctrine. Despise an errant doctrine, resist an errant doctrine. Excellent. What about the way we sing? It's the old phrase I was talking about was last night with someone, like the frozen chosen, right? I'm not asking you to be charismatic. I'm not pleading for you to be charismatic. But also, too, there should be, I mean, this is a strong singing church, and I love it, and you bless me. I just, sometimes I stop singing and just listen because you edify and encourage me in your praise of God. <coughs> Excellent. I think faithful missional giving, right, characterizes a church that's <coughs> passionate about God's glory. We willingly give, not only for proclamation of the gospel locally, but around the world as well. Small groups are a great context, right? Be intentional with reach week would be another way to do this as well. Last one I'll ask you is what do families passionate about the glory of God, what do they look like? What's that? Yeah, a place where love... uh, Uplifting each other, love reigns. Excellent. What else? Families passionate about the glory of God. What does that look like? I think one is just being creatively intentional with proclaiming the work of God, right? Having, having meals with neighbors, interactions with neighbors, both planned and unplanned. Those things that we would call inconveniences to our schedule, Right? Evangelism does not happen by accident. We are very purposeful and intentional. I think as well, if you are a parent, obviously one of our greatest tasks is right is bring our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We expose our children to the glory of this scheme. We are communicating via our life and our words and our prayers and our singing and our worship 
that the Lord reigns. And this marks our families and our homes. We pray together. We worship. We're, there's missional speaking in the home. We think about people or, or the ambulance on the side of the road. There, there's interactions and things that our children are observing and we're helping them think through the lens of the glory of God in all of this. We convey to them that your God reigns. Our God reigns. So that's the constant message that they're hearing. Families passionate about the glory of God. Even children's ministry, VBS coming up, right? People that will show up from this neighborhood. What an opportunity that is to declare greatness. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us to be faithful in an area where we are not as faithful as we ought to be, to be sure. God, we, I guess even in that space, we are prompted to quickly ask for mercy and for forgiveness. We are not as faithful as we ought to be, like so many areas, but this is one that's very pronounced often in our minds. On a disciplined, practical front, Lord, we, we either cower away from people, we have the fear of man, or we do things from wrong motives. Lord, for whatever reason, we, we do not steward this message, this treasure that we have in jars of clay. We do not steward it as we ought to. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would break us, that you would convict us of this unfaithful stewardship. And Lord, that you would fuel us and drive us to do something wonderfully different with our lives, that we would become markedly more zealous and faithful and passionate about seeing your glory and your renown spread on all the earth. Uh, We pray for our pastor this week who will go to uh, Dominican Republic for a few days to no doubt spread the gospel and obviously officiate a wedding. But Lord, there will be people there who, who need to hear of your greatness. We pray that you would save sinners, not only this morning, but even this week, even in the DR, Lord. We pray that for the rest of the world. We pray for the universal church that gathers. Lord, even in places and contexts where there's fear of, of people barging in the doors and, Lord, shutting down a service, that is not the case here. Lord, we pray for the church. Fill them with courage and boldness and faithfulness. Help your word be rightly divided. And, Lord, we pray for, the, for your people. We cling to the promise that you will build your church. We want to be a part of that work. We want to be faithful in that work. Would you move us at North Lake Bible Church to be just that? We pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.